A Weekend with Jason Dacey Replay from Money FM 89.3. We have got our usual segment at this time of Sunday morning, which is our International News Week in Review. Joining us today is Steve Oaken, a former Clinton administration official and now the senior advisor at McClarty and Associates. Steve, welcome. Thank you. Great to be back with you, Glenn. Yeah, it's good to be here. There's a lot going on, as usual, it seems. And unfortunately, we've got to start with the U.S. <laughs> we've got to start with the week three mm-hmm. of the government shutdown. Yesterday, the Democrats met again uh, with the president to no avail. And now they're um, you know, putting legislation together to try to do an end run around the president. Put it in perspective for us. Where are we? When I was here last week, I said, you know, 2019 is going to be about the four eyes. It's going to be about immigration. It's going to be about impeachment, investigations, and infrastructure. We hit two of the eyes this week, right? Immigration, which is why the government is shut down right now. There's a, a big difference between the Democrats and the Republicans about what should be done on border security. President Clinton is insisting on over $5 billion to build a wall, and the Democrats are saying not one penny is going to go towards a wall. I think we're starting to see the outlines of a compromise where there will be money given to border security, just not for the wall or not entirely for the wall. So this is going to come to an end, this shutdown. It's just a matter of time. Steve Okins with us, former Clinton administration official. Steve, as we look at this shutdown, a lot of people are being impacted by it. And to date, the Republicans and especially the president seem to think that it's really not such a big deal. But the electorate is starting to make noise and we're starting to see more stories about how this is really impacting people on the ground. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are saying, well, this is, you know, just a short shutdown. It's not really impacting me because the government is continuing with essential services, even though it can't pay people like those who work at the security checkpoints at U.S. airports, but they're still there. The parks are open, although they're not having any rangers there. Well, this is going to start to really hit home when all those people who do not just live in Washington, D.C., 80 percent of the 800,000 live throughout the country. When they can't pay their bills, they're in possibility of having their water shut off or their electricity cut off. You're going to start seeing all these stories across the country, and there is going to be a cry out to get this solved and that both sides are going to have to come and get this solved. Right now, the Democrats, I think, have the upper hand politically. If the president continues to say, I'm going to own this shutdown for a year, it's going to hurt. He's going to pivot off that. He's going to have to pivot off that. And so we are going to get a solution because, as you said, Glenn, we're going to start to see all these local stories come out. You mentioned the president wanting to own this, and he's backed off on that, and he's come back to that, and he's back and forth, right, a number of different times. But at this time, do you sense that the electorate is holding both parties equally responsible to just get this solved, or does one side or the other still have an upper hand? I think the Democrats have the upper hand right now because they have put forth a plan to end the shutdown. They've said, we're going to fund all of the agencies other than the Department of Homeland Security, because that's where the fight is over the wall. And we're going to do a temporary solution there until February. We're going to kick the can down the road so we can negotiate and have a real compromise and address legitimate border security issues without giving you funding for the wall. The president right now is saying it's all or nothing. And so until he backs off that all or nothing pledge, the Democrats are going to have somewhat of an upper hand. But as this goes on, as people's lives are really impacted, everyone's going to say both sides just come up and and get us a solution. How different is this current proposal by the Democrats than the one that President Trump had initially approved before he disapproved of it. It goes into what the trade-offs are. And the old trade-off was the Democrats will give some funding for the wall – 
in exchange for DACA, which is, you know, the dreamers being able to stay in the U.S. That is now off the table. So this is a different set of proposals right now. The question is, Will the Democrats take some deal on the Dreamers? Will the president even Mm. offer that anymore? Where the Democrats' frustration is, is they don't know what the president's going to do from one day to the other. He says, yes, I'm for it. And then the next day he says, no, I'm not. And right now the Democrats are negotiating primarily with Vice President Pence, but it's unclear if Vice President Pence has the authority to offer a deal that the president is going to stick to. Well, we've seen that before where an official will say something and make a commitment and then the president just backtracks on it. So it's hard to know, right? Yeah, It's almost impossible to know. And I think we can extend Even when the president says something, it's hard to know. Which is even extended that to Asia, right? Where what does China need to do to get to an agreement to take the tariffs off. That is a great segue into the China-U.S. summit, scheduled to happen anyway, this coming week. What do we look for there? Well, again, it's what is the president going to insist upon right now under U.S. law? He has put the tariffs on China because of their violations of U.S. IP rights, you know, intellectual property mm-hmm. rights. And so basically the president is saying these tariffs stay on until you change your entire system from a, st- a state-driven economy to a market-driven economy. No more for technology transfers, no more foreign ownership restrictions, no more cyber theft. You know, we're, we want to have our cybersecurity guaranteed. China seems to be willing to make some concessions there, like there's a law now being considered in China to no longer require forced technology transfers to approve a JV, you know, a joint venture between the U.S. and a Chinese company. The question is, is that going to go far enough for the president? The Chinese are making some concessions, but will it be enough? We've got, you know, really until March 2nd to find out if the U.S. and China can come to an agreement. I'm Glenn Van Zutphen here on 89.3 Money FM. Steve Oaken is joining me now for our International News Week review. Steve, of course, uh, was with the Clinton administration. More recently is now the uh, senior advisor at McClarty Associates here in Singapore. Uh, Steve, the summit that's supposed to happen next week comes amid two kind of major developments in this past week. One is the State Department travel warning to China. And the second one is this U.S. law for the Indo-Pacific that is reaffirming security ties with some of the U.S. partners in this part of the world. Any surprise that these are happening at this particular moment? Is this part of the negotiating strategy or did they just things just kind of happen. No, I mean, this is part of a strategy of the Trump administration, which has said we are going to move off of the policy of accommodate and engage, which is that was the former, you know, U.S. position was we're going to engage with the Chinese and we're going to accommodate their rise as they shift from a state driven economy to a market driven one. We're going to have them join the WTO, but we're going to give them concessions in doing so. We're going to allow them to restrict our entry into their market, even though we're not going to restrict their entry into our market, because the theory was China was going to change. That hasn't happened as the U.S. thought it would. And so now there's an entire shift of the U.S. government. And so people are too focused on the trade aspect of it. They should focus on the trade aspect. They should focus on the alliance aspect of it. They should focus on the funding aspect of it as the U.S. is shifting away. This has been in place for at least a year in the Trump administration. And it's something that should be of concern to people in Asia as they try and now navigate what's going to happen in this new relationship. For the first year, as I recall, of the Trump administration, it was like they basically ignored Asia. And this came on the heels of the Obama administration pivot or rebalance, right, I believe was the term they used. Is this a new day for the Trump administration in terms of reengaging or taking a more powerful military posture 
against China? Well, it's a whole of government strategy, and it is somewhat of a new day in terms of the Trump administration as to where it's been going over the last really six months or so. I think the biggest unforced error of the Trump administration by far was pulling out of the TPP, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, on day three. Now the Trump administration is saying we need to engage in <laughs> trade, right? We're going to negotiate with the Japanese. We're maybe right. going to negotiate with the Philippines, and we're going to do these bilateral trade agreements. But they're also going to say we need to invest in infrastructure in Asia. We've got to counter, you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative with our build, you know, B-U-I-L-D. We're right. going to have a build program where we're going to work and put money into Asia and to do so in alliance with the Japanese and the Australians and the Indians. Um, and we're going to have this Indo-Pacific strategy. So it's really part of a whole of government strategy. They focused on tariffs to begin with China, but now it is it is shifting to be much more all-encompassing. And it is going to require a balancing act between countries like Singapore, which is going to have to balance how the U.S. is acting and what China needs. Isn't it odd, though? A number I saw, I think it was a billion and a half dollars they're going to start pumping into Asia for the partners, right, to shore up these relationships. And I'm probably understating or simplifying that. But isn't it weird that at the same time they're doing that, they're saying, we got to pull out of NATO, we got to stop spending money in NATO because that's, you know, we're spending too much money and all this and not getting any bang for the buck or whatever it is. Is there a discord there, a disconnect there? I mean, I think there is a disconnect. I mean, it's something that the, you know, the U.S. business community, certainly in Asia, has been talking about the strong need for multilateral approaches. We cannot just, you know, have the U.S. engage in bilateral positions when it comes to, let's say, we're going to have a U.S.-Japan trade agreement and not be in the TPP, because that is really going to hurt American businesses, especially those that export from the U.S. to Canada to Japan-like agriculture, that Trump base. And so what we want to see more of is is a multilateral engagement. The Indo-Pacific strategy is part of that. Mm. And hopefully the Trump administration is going to overcome its aversion to multilateral fora and to re-engage in those activities from trade perspective, but also from a geopolitical perspective. Uh, with Steve Oaken here now, the senior advisor from Aclarity Associates, Steve Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm. the congresswoman from New York. And this week she was in a video with some not-so-dirty dancing, actually two videos, set the stage for what happened and then what the response was. What's happening, I think, from an overall perspective is that, you know, people kind of in our demographic, right, the 50 to dead uh, demographic, (laughs) right, we don't understand social media. We did not grow up with social media. We did not grow up with our lives on video as people of her age do now. It is not a big deal to have a, you know, dance to a music video that's a mashup of a movie, Breakfast Club, which came out when you and I were there. Right, age, right. Right? So it's just fun and people put that up now. You know, older people say, oh, well, this is embarrassing. This is not how a congressperson should be acting. But this is accepted now. And so this... And for post- a 28-year-old, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she was probably 20. Yeah. Right? This video is from 2010 when she was probably 20 years old. Yeah. And so to now hold people to a standard that this is inappropriate behavior is just not going to work. It's, and she is extraordinarily press savvy. She's completely turn this to her advantage. And I think there's the small lesson to take, which is that she is really going to be a force in the Mm. Congress with how press savvy is. But there's a larger picture that things that we might not have done and put online because the technology didn't exist, they're there now. It's just going to be accepted. And it's just a different world. 
Interesting. She slapped back with her own video of her dancing in front of her door as she was entering her new house office. Something like almost immediately 13 million <laughs> views. So she gets it. Those on, and it was the the right, we don't know who on the right, I'm not saying the Republicans, but somebody thought that this would embarrass her. It's completely backfired um, and is making her more popular, not only with her, but to show the type of energy that we want to see in Congress today. Yeah. Money FM, 89.3 where you can always hear inspiring interviews and Singapore stories. One of those inspiring interviews right now is with Steve Oaken, the former Deputy General Counsel for the U.S. Department of Transportation in the Clinton administration, and is somebody that knew Herb Kelleher, who was the former CEO, the founder of Southwest Airlines, who passed away, I believe at 79 years old, earlier this week. Steve, talk to us about First, let's start with who was Herb Kelleher? What was he like? I really only dealt with Herb when I was, you know, in government and he would come into Washington to testify. And so got to see him in action, both the Department of Transportation and then with the U.S. Congress. And Herb Kelleher succeeded where everybody else failed, which was how do you start up a new airline in the United States without getting, you know, basically crushed by the incumbent airlines, you know, the Americans and Uniteds and Deltas and Northwests of the world back then. And how do you make money? Southwest is basically the only airline that's made money every year of its existence. It, you know, lost mm. a little bit when it started, but every other airline had gone into bankruptcy maybe multiple times, but sure. Southwest never did. So what Herb was able to do was two things. One, he took advantage of U.S. law because back then Dallas— what, what year was that roughly? The late 70s, right? Well, it was, 70... well, it was early. I mean, he started, the, I think, the late 60s, and then he really started to come into the late 70s, Loves, where, late he, 70s. Okay. where he took advantage of U.S. law. So what happened was Dallas had an airport called Love Field. And that's like basically right in downtown Dallas. And then huge airport was built, DFW, Dallas, Fort Worth, built midway between Dallas and Fort Worth. And so what the Department of Transportation did was they created a perimeter rule around Love Field. So they said, if you want to serve Love Field, you can only fly within a couple hundred miles of Love Field because we want all the long haul flights to go out of DFW. So, you know, Dallas, Los Angeles, Dallas, New York, Dallas, Washington, whatever it may be, all has to run out of DFW. So every airline left DFW. And Southwest said, we have an opportunity to serve Dallas out of Love Field, and we're going to be protected because we're only going to fly within Texas. We're going to fly Dallas-Houston. We're going to fly Dallas-San Antonio, right? We're going to fly Dallas-El Paso. We're just going to stay within. So they were protected. They essentially had a monopoly on those Mm -hmm. routes, and they couldn't get unfairly competed against by the majors. Okay. That's his one thing. The second thing that Herb said was that when an airplane sits on the ground, it doesn't make money. So the airplane has to be in the air as much of the time as possible. So we are going to have quick turns. We're going to have no-frill service. We're going to have pilots help clean out the cabin (laughs) (laughs) so that we can get this thing done faster. That's no-frills. No-frills. Turn of planes as quick as possible to make the most money. Combining those two things, he created an airline that was then able to survive and then compete with the behemoths later on. Yeah. And as he did that, he was apparently quite a character. You know, he was a smoker, a drinker, had a big laugh, according to what I've read. I never met him, but he seemed like a personality as well. He was a total person. He was certainly, obviously, he's a legend. He was a complete, you know, personality. And he understood two things. He said when he created South 
Southwest. And people were saying, well, how come your fares are so low? You know, why are you not just 20 percent cheaper than the airlines? You're like 60 percent cheaper than the airlines. And he said, I'm not competing with the airlines. I'm competing with bus. I'm competing Mm. with people's cars. I want to get them out of their cars. I want to get them off buses. I want to get them off trains. And I'm competing with them. And so he said, I'm not competing with the other major carriers. I'm not trying to be in their service. So that's one thing he did. The second thing he really focused on was customer service. Right. And he would fly in the airplanes and just talk to the customers. And what is it that they want? What is it working? What's not working? He would be a baggage handler in a day to see what it was like to be a baggage handler. He would be a customer service agent to see how that job went. He was totally focused on customer service. It's something that the other low-cost carriers that you're seeing now in Asia, I think they're losing sight of that. And they're saying, maybe we could just be 10% or 20% cheaper than SIA or CAFE. That's not the way that Herb would have gone about it. And I think some of the airlines here aren't doing that, and they're not succeeding where Herb succeeded. But isn't that true not just for airlines in Asia, but for airlines everywhere? It seems like everyone is just so cost-conscious that they're forgetting about the people, right? Well, you can be both. You can be cost conscious, but you always put the customer first when you're cost conscious. And that's what's not happening now. I mean, I read today in the Straits Times, there's an article about, you know, the title is What's Gone Wrong with Scoot, right? The low cost version uh, owned by Singapore Airlines. And, you know, there's a professor who says that it's cheaper, right? If a Scoot flight can't take off from a foreign destination, it's cheaper to keep the passengers in that foreign country for a couple of days than it is to bring in a new airplane to take them out. And that the customers should know that before they buy their ticket. The customers yeah. don't know that before they buy, buy the tickets. They don't know the, and they don't care, right? Exactly. <laughs> if you're buying me a ticket to right. get me from A to B and back to A, yeah. do that. And don't tell me, well, it might take a couple days longer than I thought because that's in our interest from a financial perspective. You're not going to survive as an airline if you do that. And that's something that Herb, obviously, he knew that and he knew that so well. Yeah. You know, very Various low-cost carriers that I have taken over the years in Asia have, you know, suddenly cancel a flight, you know, literally hours before saying, oh, there was an equipment problem Mm -hmm. or, you know, the old equipment excuse. Mm -hmm. To me, it always feels like, you know what, I don't think you're being honest with me. I think you just didn't fill the flight and you don't want to run it and you're going to save some money. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that certainly is the way it feels. But so many times I've flown Southwest when I've been back in the U.S. And I have to say, every time it's been a great experience. The staff is nice to you, which we don't get on a lot of the other U.S. carriers. You know, they just do their job and they just get you there. The thing that they do so well on Southwest is you do know what you're getting. You know what you're buying. You know you're not going to get, you know, a hot meal. You know you're, you know, may have a different order of boarding. You don't know how much, you know, carry-on baggage you're going to be able to bring because everybody's bringing carry-on baggage. So your expectations for those types of things are low, but your expectation for how you're going to be treated and are they going to get you where they're going to tell you they're going to get you is always met. And that's what is so important. And that's what the airlines are saying. Well, if you're paying less, you should expect less. Maybe you should expect less of certain things, but certainly not in how you're treated and not in whether you're going to get taken from point A to point B. I took a flight one time and we land at Southwest and we landed into Love Field and we were about 10 minutes early. And so the flight attendant comes on and says, you know, welcome to Love Field, as they always do. Just to let you know, we're 10 minutes early right now. So the next time you fly us and we're 10 minutes late, we're even. <laughs> you know? I mean, just like that, the cabin just busted up laughing, you know, but it's just that kind of down home, comfortable attitude that I think people really love that airline for. They do love that airline. And again, you know, you're not going to expect the Southwest culture to be, you know, taken on in Southeast Asia when it comes to, 
you know, having, you know, the pilots joking around, which you know, may not work as well here as it would work right. uh, in the U.S. You don't take yourself too seriously, but you should take yourself seriously on the important things. And Herb was able to do that because of his personality was to fight off the unfair competition. And that's something that, you know, we had worked on to protect them and other new entrants at DOT. So what's the lesson now for so many of the low-cost carriers? What's the Southwest lesson? I mean, I think the Southwest lesson is customer first. Yes, you can maximize your revenue, and you maximize your revenue by keeping the planes in the air as long as possible. And again, Herb said that if the plane's sitting on the ground, it's not making any money. Right. So you do your quick turns. But the customer needs to have a, a realistic expectation of what level of service they're going to get. Yeah, you're not expecting the same level of service on Scoot as you're expecting on, on SQ, you know, on Singapore Airlines. But you are expecting to get where you're told you're going to be going. Yeah. And, and that they have to focus on. And Herb always focused on that. He always focused on the customers. He always focused on service. And he focused on making money. You can do all of those things. You should not be saying, well, we're going to trade off service for money. You don't have to do that. Steve Oaken, thank you so much for joining us today. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Have a great Sunday. Thanks. You too, Glenn. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.